This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a new offering from the Sunday Book Review, which is the Sunday Book Review Author's Edition, where I visit with an author over his or her book about compliance, leadership, and best practices. Numerous uh, folks have asked me to put on a book review podcast, so the Sunday Book Review Author's Edition will fill that slot. Thanks for listening. Today, Keith Reed on the Unconventional Compliance Officer. First, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you are in for a treat today, uh, because I'm in for a treat, and uh, we're going to visit with Keith Reed. I've known Keith for, I don't know, how long, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. We worked together at Conversant before it became part of OneTrust, and uh, we're here to talk about Keith's first book entitled The Unconventional Compliance Officer, Doing Things Differently, subtitled with Science of Compliance, Driving Your Program, Reputation, and Career. So, Keith, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, <laughs> welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation. It's really good of you, Tom. Thank you. Keith, could you uh, tell the audience a little bit about your professional background and what you're up to today? Sure. So, I was the Chief Compliance and Ethics Officer at British Telecom. Um, and British Telecom in those days was... 200 odd thousand people, 176 countries, um, 30 billion turnover, 30 billion dollars turnover. So it was a big company, and I think that's probably where most of my hair went when I was doing that job. Um, but so that was that was my background. I left BT, set up on my own um, about 12 years ago, and and I've been very fortunate. Never had a website, anything like that, but I've worked solidly, literally solidly for the last 12 years on a range of projects for. The names in the industry, in our industry, such as LRN, Conversant, uh, GAN, Global Advice Network, as it was, and so on, and and lots of others. So that's really my background, where how I ended up here. Um, Fourteen years ago, I thought I was going to write a book, and it's just that I got round to it in the last in the last year. <laughs> well, uh, better late than never, um, and congratulations uh, joining okay. the Compliance Author Book Club. Um, so, uh, I've, uh, given the title of this book, uh, very English, very English. Uh, so let's start off with why for 14 years have you wanted to write this book and what got you off your duff to write it now? <laughs> A good, very good question. Um, so what I found was that if compliance officers, uh, face broadly similar challenges, maybe slightly different in one industry to another, but broadly the core challenges are very similar. Um, I also felt that compliance officers had a limited range of tools to address those. Um, so you, know, I could, I, you could go to an event, you read an article and so on, it's the same tools um, with minor variations and so on. And when I was with BT and subsequently after leaving, I wanted to do things differently. Hence the title of, of the book. Um, and I, you know, some of the things when you're dealing with a company that's, you know, two hundred thousand people and so on, you have to do it unconventionally because conventional tools um, won't work. I was very fortunate to win an award. I was one compliance officer of, of the year here and so on. Um, and the Daily Telegraph won the big 
big papers here, did an article, and they called it Compliance and Science. And that's where that comes from. So that, that title you read out has all been put together from different sources. Um, so that's how I ended up that's how I ended up here, trying to do things differently. Keith, uh, could you remind me what year you started in compliance with BT? So, good question. So it was about 2000, about 2000, and, and I put a proviso on that, that for about three years, I did a job which was as general manager for supply chain integrity. The company was spending about £6 billion, £6 billion on its supply chain. And, and to be honest, yeah, there wasn't a great deal of management of the integrity of that supply chain. So the potential was huge. I did that for for about three years and so on. Um, and then suddenly uh, I'd come to the attention of one, one or two of the seniors and so on, the CFO in the company, get a call third Thursday. By Tuesday, I'm the, I'm the new compliance director for the company. So that's how compliance came about in 2003. So, Keith, uh, I started in compliance a little later than you in 07, but even in 07, <laughs> compliance was written by lawyers for lawyers. Sure. It was completely legally driven, uh, sure. even, even though there were differences in a U.S. and EU slash U.K. approach of rules and regs in the U.S. and perhaps more values in the EU slash U.K., but it was still a legal response to a law here in the United States, the FCPA, later in the United Kingdom, uh, the Bribery Act. And one of the first times I met you, you were already talking about the evolution beyond the legal-based components of compliance. You were talking about behavior. You were talking about nudges. You were talking about really how to motivate people. So I was always intrigued by, um, and, and of course you could continue this theme in the book around behavioral psychology. What got you thinking, if if not a better way to do it, a different way to do it? So when I took the job and originally and, and, and my, made my first move into compliance, the company was under siege. Um, a lot of pressure from competitors, a lot of criticism in the press, even in, in our parliamentary system and so on. And, and so what I had to do was to change things change them quickly, but also make it stick. Um, and as I say, when you're dealing with that many countries, 200,000, 250,000 employees and contractors, you have to do something different. And that's really what made me think that there was no point keep firing out training to people and so on, that they might do, they might not do. Believe if they did it, they might do it at four o'clock on a Friday night. They weren't really, um, really engaged with it. And I had to change that and had to change it quickly. This was no time for delay. Uh, and that's where it all, all stemmed from. Um, I'd like to think I'm a very practical person and so on. And I'd like to think as well that I've you know, worked at all different levels in organisations and so on. And therefore, you know, I use some of those lessons to work out how I thought things could be done differently. Hence, again, the title of the book. So what led you really to trying some uh, behavioural psychology or or even a broader science approach. You you said several times you knew you had to do something different. How did you land on some strategies from those disciplines and what was in a really legal-based discipline of compliance? I think that for me, I've, I think that historically the, the compliance had been run on, on the basis of being, his, uh, of being legally based, as, as you said. 
um, and I had to do something differently. Again, that's really what I set out there. That was all. wanted to do it differently, and I also felt that, um, for example, um, you know, we, we, we had a hotline. Um, hotline was internal, and the box was ticked. We were happy with it. Yeah, we could discharge those requirements. problem was that one morning I decided to make seven test calls to our hotline, including one in French, um, and of those seven test calls, I, and they were all designed to come back to me as the compliance director, compliance officer. I only ever heard back about two of those. So you imagine if I was somebody on the front line, if I was you know, an engineer working in the field and so on, and I summoned up the courage to make that call, and then surprise, surprise, nothing comes of it, I'm not going to do it again. And I'm sure I'm certainly going to tell my colleagues and so on that it's a waste of time. So again, you know, that's where the practicalities come in that I had to change that. Keith, I've also heard you talk about uh, retaliation for those who spoke up or speak up or spoken up. And you were really one of the first people who looked at that from a systemic approach. And could you tell us about the story of the time at BT where you actually just sat down and, and sort of mapped it out to discover what was going on? Yeah, it was a very, really good question. So, I mean, essentially, um, we had an anti-retaliation policy. Now, I've, over the years, studied a myriad of anti-retaliation policies, ranging from literally about 16 words to 16 pages. But that was it. That was it. That was the policy. Um, and we, we, we had a case which really brought home to me. Um, so a manager um, in Singapore um, bullied one of his, his team and so on. You know, that was bad enough and so on. Um, the, the, the person who was being bullied had a heart attack, which was, you know, serious enough. But then what happened was the son of the guy who was being bullied thought that because his father wouldn't be able to work, he'd have to leave school, everything would change in his life. And the son, who was about 13, tried to commit suicide, all because of retaliation, bullying and so on. And I just wasn't prepared to have have that. So what I started to do is to look at what, what we had, what data we had that we could focus, drive, change retaliation and, and really implement an anti-retaliation, not just a policy, but a process and something that, that really operated well. Um, and so what I did one night, I can still remember, I was sitting here at home one night and I had this had some data and so on that I'd asked for and I pulled up five measures of what I thought might be retaliation. Promotion, bonus, pay rise, annual review, um, overtime, those sort of things. And, and I, my family still remembers it. I'm sitting here and I said, oh, no. And you could just see, you could just see the patterns that somebody had made a report. And then suddenly, a few weeks later, a few months later, their annual review marking had dropped off a cliff. Um, all those sort of things you could see. Uh, but you know, it's one thing having a policy, but using that data and then using it actively is really important. And, and just really just to, without banging on for a, for a long time, but also we started to do follow-up with whistleblowers. Um, and often you could pick the phone up, you'd follow up with a whistleblower, they'd say, yeah, no, I haven't faced any retaliation and so on. But with that data, you could then say to them, well, hold it, your annual review market went down or you didn't get a pay rise this year and so on. 
And suddenly they realised that you were much more engaged with this than they ever thought. And that fundamentally changed you know, how retaliation was managed and, and measured and so on. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. It does. And uh, one of the things that I've heard you advocate over the years was not simply a, a robust anti-retaliation policy, but when the EU anti-retaliation policy for GDPR uh, was developed, you you really spoke to companies and tried to educate them on their burden of proof now and right. how they might show that. And what impressed me about that, your work there was it was strategies and tactics you had talked about and developed many years before from your observations. One of the most interesting things, and I'm going to kind of conflate my conversations with you over the years with the book, <laughs> because I, I heard a lot of those conversations when I read the book, is uh, particularly lawyers, of which I'm one, um, we focus on the inputs. So how many people got trained? Uh, how many due diligence reports did we do? How many contracts with compliance terms and conditions did we insert? How many were signed? Uh, how many training were th to third parties? All of those things. And you've consistently talked about, let's shift our thinking to the output, outcomes, not the inputs. I think the Department of Justice has finally evolved to your thinking, but could you talk about sort of that journey and why you believe outcomes are much more important than simply the inputs? Sure. It's, it's a, again a very good question. So, um, yeah, my background and so on. Um, yeah, I've spent a while running procurement and so on, and you know, all the input measures of delivery on time and all that were great. But actually, you know, we often we were buying three products and only getting revenue from one and so on. So the output measure was was really really significant. And when I took the compliance job, I, I took that thinking with me. Um, and so, you know, I turned up and we were congratulating ourselves on 99% of people had done their training and, and all that, all good stuff. The problem is I didn't sense that there was a, a shift in the company's approach that recognised or respected that 99% that training and so on. And so that started me thinking, oh, well, let's look at the output measures. Um, and, and some of those output measures... You, know, you, you almost have to sort of create, and, and some people may be uneasy about this, but one of the examples I use in the book is the bottle-shaped box. Um, so, for example, I sent a bottle-shaped box to everyone in procurement um, at, at Christmas. They assumed it had a bottle of wine or scotch or whatever in it, but it actually had a copy of the Code of Conduct. Now, <laughs> they never forgave me for it, but they Merry never Christmas. forgot it. Yeah, absolutely. They never forgot it. So, again, although that's not quite the, the, the output measure of that was that we, we, we detected, we saw fundamental shifts in compliance performance driven by the bottle-shaped box and so on. Um, and I think as well, you know, plenty of other examples like that and so on. Um, and in the book, I pose the question of, of how far would you go? So, for example... Yeah, we had 99% of people trained on, on anti-bribery. We did a special training for 1,500-odd. Um, all was good, all was good. But then I invited them to a day at the races, subsequently six months on from that. Um, and all of, that, of those people, 
I was alarmed, really alarmed at the number of people who had just accepted the invitation to a day at the races without question. Um, so again, you know, all that reinforcing, um, it's one thing doing the training. And, and our systems weren't perfect, but what we were able to see was that a lot of people, A, were doing their training at 4.30, 5 o'clock on a Friday night, and B, there were some cases where a secretary or assistant would do it for their boss. And indeed, there was some evidence that, that that same person would do it for a whole office. So again, you know, looking at what the reality of the measurements are made a big difference. Does, does that help? Uh, certainly. Um, if a client or potential client came to you and said, Keith, we would like you to help us understand and then build a world-class whistleblowing system. How would you help them think through that and then perhaps design, create, and or implement that program? Again, that's a good question. Um, if I sort of come from the back end of that first, there's a lot of things you can do um, which taken together make a big impact on a whistleblowing process. So, for example, you know, test what you've got and then keep testing it. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's one example. I think, again, another example is where um, you know, what happens when somebody calls from overseas? Is that dealt with? Is that dealt with promptly and so on? If it's coming from a high-risk country, you know, do, do, is, that, is that call lost and so on? I, th I think as well that obviously increasing what I'm seeing and working on is putting reports into escrow. So, for example, um, you know, if something happens to me today, um, I might not make a report. I might put it off till tomorrow. Or I might never get round to making it. But if I can put an escrow facility in that says something happened, I'm going to make a report. I don't want to make that report yet formally, but I want to log it. And what that does is two or three things. One, it says for all the people affected by, say, bullying and so on, once you get two or three reports from the London depot or something, you can start to say there's a pattern here. People might not necessarily want to make that report um, to the company. They might ne not necessarily want any action taken, but it's good to be able to log it. It also means, for example, um, say you've helped the individual and the company knows there is a problem at their particular depot or, or wherever it is. So all of those facilities are all the sort of things you can do. I think as well that you know, getting reports in the book, I touch on uh, getting people to make reports on canteen food. Because once they make their report on canteen food, um, then when they have to do it for real in the future, they know the process. They're not frightened by the process. Putting dogs and cats and so on, um, you know, on the on the website, etc., makes people go there. Makes people, you know, feel full warm and, and fuzzy about going there and so on. So, all I'm saying is those are lots of little things which you may say on their own are not significant. But coming back to your question, question which is about how would you build it? Again, as I say, I would look at uh, what the company wants, what the company size is what they do now, what the opportunities are, and how those opportunities can be put together to, to get towards a, a world-class whistleblowing process. Keith, one of the other topics I've heard you consistently talk about over the years is conflicts of interest. Uh, and you talk about them in terms of known conflicts of interest, where it's obvious. Uh, you talk about perhaps unknown conflicts of interest, and then you have sort of a category in the middle, uh, and uh, I've heard you advocate various strategies to help 
uh, people understand conflicts of interest, as well as compliance officers being to, able to oversee that. Um, why in 2023 are we still talking about conflicts of interest? Is that just human nature? And how would you help a company think through uh, conflicts of interest that could even be positive? Uh, again, so uh, that was a, a phrase phrasing that I came up with, which was positive conflicts of interest. For me, everybody sees conflicts of interest as, as negative. I mean, uh, maybe that's an overstatement, but if, if somebody suddenly sends you an email to say, we want a report on your, you know, any conflict of interest and so on, um, it's again, it's another example of, of compliance push. And, and we'll come back to that in a moment, perhaps. But so what I thought was about how you could make positive, how you can make conflicts of interest positive. Um, and th- that was a that was a big step. I also used a lot of examples of, of serious conflicts of interest. I think a lot of people think that conflicts of interest are, are a minor issue, but one of the world one of the UK's worst rail disasters was caused by a conflict of interest because an engineer working on some signals and so on, um, unbeknown to his bosses, had worked you know set thirteen consecutive seven day weeks and so on, but for two companies. So as a consequence, they just didn't know. And when you start to use examples like that, people start to realise that this isn't just a paper exercise. This isn't just another compliance bit of hassle and so on. This is stuff which can be very important. Um, And the positive conflicts of interest was the fact that what I tried to decipher was what people did um, with their time was. And, and, And the short story was, after I asked about people working for charities and all that sort of thing, we suddenly found we had, you know, like 2,000 people who were holding quite responsible roles um, in, their, in their own time in charities and so on. And that became a win for the, for the company, it became a win for the individuals, and it also became a win for, for, for the charities themselves. And so, as I say, that whole issue of positive conflicts of interest, making what is seen as intrusive into a positive, fundamentally shifts perceptions. Um, and, and just to step back a fraction, you would have seen me write quite a bit in the book, which is about um, every compliance officer in the world spends their time pushing. You know, you push out training, you push out reminders, you push out escalations, you push out communications. What that leads to is compliance fatigue and compliance pushback. And what I spend a lot of time doing is saying, how can you turn that push into pull? And there's two or three examples of in the book about how you can do, do that that work really well. Keith, I'd like to ask you to maybe look down the road a little bit. Uh, there is a lot of talk about <clears throat> compliance moving away, obviously, from strictly legal, but also bringing in different disciplines, different business disciplines, different scientific disciplines, behavioral psychology, data analytics, organizational behavior, and other um, disciplines that, frankly, I've heard you advocate for many years. Uh, So where do you see the compliance department and compliance function going? And I used to say 2025, but I've decided that uh, 2030 is within the mid-century, right? So where do you see compliance in mid-century starting 2030? I definitely think that all of those functions, roles you mentioned and so on will become more involved in compliance without question. Um, 
I think as well that one of the things you touched on analytics and data halfway through that, I think one of the things is that often companies um, have data, but they don't use it or they don't think about it in a compliance context. So, for example, um, I, you know, if I was talking to people, I'd usually say, how many entries do you get on your uh, on your hospitality register and so on? And, and often they'll say, well, a handful or, you know, we, we we get a few and all that sort of thing. So one of the things I did was I looked at the visitor logs of our main procurement building and looked at people who were turning up either about midday or about five o'clock on the basis that they're likely to be taking out a procurement officer for lunch or for dinner. Um, when I then cross-correlated that um, to the, the hospitality reports, it was probably you know, 5%, 10% and so on. So that's an example of the data's there, the, the, the cross comparisons are there, the benchmarks are there. So why not use that data? The other uh, thing that has really been brought home to me, uh, starting with the pandemic, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and some other events that we probably all didn't foresee, was the nature and the change of risk. And I want, want to point to a small one uh, and then use that as perhaps an example of how you would help a compliance officer think through how you assess a change in risk. And it came early on in the pandemic, working from home. My wife was, uh, then working for a large uh, oil service company. Uh, a vendor emailed her and said, can I have your home address? I thought, well, that's odd, but she gave it to him. And we got a DoorDash card for $75. Now, I used to work at this same company, and I said, you know, that's over the limit because I know what the limit is. And I'm sure the vendor hadn't thought of that, or at least it, there was not a nefarious thought in sending it. They were just trying to maintain a relationship where they couldn't come to the office and, and interact. Um, but that, to me, was a great example of what appeared to be a benign change of working from home and a corruption risk changed. So I was wondering, uh, as we move towards the end of this podcast, how do you help or encourage compliance officers to understand that it's almost a continual assessment now of have your risks changed because business is changing so rapidly? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, um, that's interesting because one of the things I put in the book was what I call is the corporate shield. It was an exercise. It's, it's more that like, it's an exercise that I developed which was to say you, know, you could do a very quick and dirty analysis of, of how risk has changed. And that's a good example. That's a good example where, you know, face value, working from home is the only change, but it can open up a whole, a whole series of, of, of issues as a, as a consequence. And I think, you know, you can't – companies often tend to go through a whole risk of piece perhaps once a year, once every couple of years and so on. You know, what I advocate is doing this much more regularly, much more granularly and so on to understand what, what's going on. Um, I, I think as well that one of the things I, I bring out in the book is the, is the cost of compliance because often people, companies shy away from doing some of this work because they think it's going to be expensive or it's going to need additional resource and so on. Now, we used to spend about 10 to £12 pounds per employee per annum on compliance. Um, Big companies, um, with one company, for example, British Airways, um, had a had a had had a fine, one fine alone, 
that was £5,300 per employee. So when you start putting those numbers together, you start saying, this is a really good value investment. But in all my travels around the world and so on, I've, I've only ever encountered one person who knew what they spent per employee brand on compliance. So again, I think that's a, a real challenge and an opportunity. But once you've got that data, it really offers such a benefit. And I hear lots of debate about how you bring the board on side and so on. When I did this, first of all, with a board, I asked them, how much do you think the company spends per employee per annum? And some of the numbers were completely outlandish, but it fundamentally changed their thinking once they realised what we spent and what the value of it was relative to fines and all, all the other things that can, can happen. Keith, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted more information on yourself, uh, how they might connect with you, uh, some of the topics we talked about in this podcast, and most importantly, where they can go to buy the book, what would you tell them? <laughs> okay, so the book is is on Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk, and eBay.co.uk. So you can get it from pretty much any source. I'm all on LinkedIn. My email address is there. So if you have any problems, I had a lady the other day who contacted me um, from uh, from from a very, very far, far away. And, and I've sent her a copy and so on. So if you want the book or you want to discuss anything, please get in touch with me. LinkedIn, you'll find me. Um, easy, easy to find. Uh, I think that's probably the best way. <laughs> Well, Keith, this has just been a ton of fun. I hope we can continue this conversation. Uh, wish you the best of luck and uh, look forward to actually seeing you again at some point. Absolutely. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. It's been really good. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. We're going to link to a purchase option for the mirror test in our show notes. I hope you will take a look at this book. There's a lot in here for the business executive, for the chief compliance officer, or for the compliance professional. For my next episode of the Sunday Book Review Authors Edition, I will visit with Keith Reed. Keith is the author of The Unconventional Compliance Officer, Doing Things Differently. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.